morning. Good morning. My name is Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and it's great to have you with us this morning. Uh, you can turn your devices to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have it, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, there's some in the back. You can grab those. It's our gift to you. And it'll also be up on the screen behind me today as we walk through it. But uh, <laughs> just joining us, we just wrapped up our summer sermon series in the book of Exodus um, last week. And in two weeks, we're actually jumping into a, a new series in the book of Romans that we're super excited about. We're going to be taking almost a full year to work through the book of Romans. Um, Romans is a powerhouse filled with rich stuff, and we're going to dive deep into it. So we're super excited about that. And I hope you'll come join us in a couple weeks as we launch into Romans. And uh, next week, Pastor Jason's going to be back from his sabbatical over the summer. Um, and he's going to be, yeah, you can give it up for that. Um, but he's going to be back here and he's going to be giving us some vision, casting some vision as we launch into the fall. So you can look forward to that too. But today, um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a, a little known story in the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I'm, I'm really excited for what God has for us this morning. So one of my uh, earliest memories happened when I was about six or seven years old. Um, I was upstairs in a spare bedroom in my parents' house where I, I lived at the time as a little, little, little kid. And um, upstairs in the house, and I'm in this spare room. Uh, my mom kind of uses an office. And I remember sitting at her desk and looking on the desk, and there in the corner of the desk was this thing called a telephone. Uh, do you all remember telephones? They, they were what uh, people used to communicate before Steve Jobs came along. <clears throat> so this thing called a telephone and I, uh, I remember looking at it and having the, the distinct, vivid thought, <clears throat> I'm not supposed to call 911. Followed immediately by the thought, I'm going to call 911. <laughs> and so sure enough, little six-year-old Jamie grabs the phone, picks it up, bump, bump, bump. Ring, ring, 911, what's your emergency? Click. Slam the phone down. Huge adrenaline rush. I'm feel, feeling great about life for about two seconds. Until I hear the phone start ringing back. And my mom picks it up downstairs. And I hear her yell up, Jamie, did you call 911? And uh, what she was yelling was far more accusation than question. <laughs> like, my mama knew that I had done wrong. And in fact, I knew that I had done wrong. And so my little six-year-old brain starts going to all kinds of extremes. I start freaking out and I'm thinking like, you know, the police are going to come and they're going to arrest me. They're going to take me away for life. Like I was scared. And so what did I do? What did I do? Well, in my six-year-old wisdom, what I did is I got down on my hands and knees and I hid underneath the desk. And I just hid there. Freaking out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, eventually, and, and the reason I hid there, y'all, like I was scared. I was ashamed of what I had done. I knew that I did wrong. And so I hid. You know, and, and eventually, uh, I think my mom got over that whole incident. And, you know, the police didn't come and take me away. I'm, I'm still here. I'm not locked away for life. But, you know, the reason I tell you that story this morning is, uh, you know, so often in life, when I found myself in similar kinds of situations, I've done the same thing. Like as a kid, when uh, my best friend's dad picked all my friends except for me to play on this travel baseball team, like they all made it and I didn't. Like I just wanted to hide. Or, or, or when I was in high school and uh, another one of my best friends, um, this girl that I, I, was, I was dating um, who I really liked, 
she cheated on me with this other one of my best friends. So I had great friends growing up. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but she, you know, she cheated on me. And like the whole school knew. And, and so, so I, I just wanted to hide. Or, or like a few years ago, um, I was working at this place and I got in some trouble. And I literally got escorted by security out of this place that I, I used to work. And like in that moment, I, I just wanted to hide. <laughs> Or now, uh, whenever one of my kids acts out or does something crazy in public, whenever they misbehave and lots of people see it, like I, I just want to hide. <laughs> in situations like those, I feel shame and fear and I just want to go into hiding. What do you do in those moments? Those moments where you're not enough, where you're less than, where you're an outsider. Where you don't fit in, where you're in trouble, where you're ashamed of something you've done or something that's been done to you. How do you respond? You know, so often in those moments, I think what we want to do is we hide in fear, wondering if there's any way out. Well, today, we're going to look at a story in 2 Samuel chapter 9 about how one man found the way out. Or to be more precise, how the way out actually came and found one man. So let me give you a little background on this story. 2 Samuel, it tells us the story of the reign of King David of Israel. And David, he lived around 950 years before Christ, about a millennium before Jesus. And he built Israel into a regional power in the Mediterranean world. And so far in the book of 2 Samuel, David's been successful in everything he has attempted. He's got favor with God and he's got favor with all the people. He's the golden boy with the Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to gold. And through it all, he's been super faithful. Like his character has been gold too. And chapter 9 really happens at the apex of the book. It's the high point of David's reign. So take a look at it with me. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. You can see it up here behind me. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul... That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. So the story begins with David asking if there are any surviving relatives of the former king, Saul. And you'll remember that Saul was the first king of Israel who had turned away from God and then spent most of his time and energy chasing David around the mountains trying to kill him. Saul was David's enemy. David was the heir apparent to the throne. He'd been anointed to be the king after Saul. And Saul didn't like it and he wanted to kill David. And so here's David as a new king. Now looking for relatives of the old king, Saul. And in the ancient world, the way that it worked was that when a new king came to power, everyone who was associated with the old king got to be intimately acquainted with the sharp end of a sword. The new king would come through and he would eliminate any potential rivals. He would get rid of them. You can kind of think Game of Thrones here. right? That's what was going on. And so that begs the question, well, here's David then, who's looking for a family member of the old king. And so that begs the question... What will David do if he finds someone? But look at what he actually says that he wants to do. It's not what Game of Thrones would lead you to expect. He says, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was Saul's oldest son, and he also happened to be David's best friend. And around the time that Saul went nuts and started trying to kill David, David and Jonathan made this agreement with one another. As Saul's son, Jonathan was the heir to the throne. But Jonathan loved David. And Jonathan knew that God intended for David to be king. 
So Jonathan swore his allegiance and his support to his rival. And in return, David promised Jonathan that when David became king, he wouldn't destroy Jonathan's family, but instead he would protect them. And here, we've got David saying that what he wants to do is to honor that promise by showing kindness to some member of Saul's family. Now, the word kindness here, it's really important. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And it's this word that shows up all over the Bible in reference to God's steadfast love. God's never failing, never giving up, always and forever love. It's one of God's chief attributes in the Bible, and it defines the way that God relates to his people. And David here says that he wants to show hesed, he wants to show kindness to a member of Saul's family. So here's the intrigue at the outset of the story. David's looking for a rival who ordinarily he'd be expected to kill, but he's saying that instead he wants to show hesed to that person. So what will he do? Pick up in verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. So there is someone. There is a member of Saul's family. We don't yet get his name, but we find out that he's actually Jonathan's son. And we find out that he's crippled. And that he's living in this place called Lo-Debar. Now, Lo-Debar was about 50 or 60 miles uh, northeast of where Jerusalem was. So, why might this crippled son of David's former rival be living in the city 50 or 60 miles away in someone else's home? Well, it might be because he knows what happens to the family members of former kings when a new king comes to power. This man is in hiding. He's hiding out in fear for his life. And now, David, the new king, knows exactly where to find him. What will David do when he does? Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now we get his name, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was one of those guys who just could not catch a break in life. Earlier in the book of 2 Samuel in chapter 4, we actually learn his story. As the son of Jonathan, he was born a prince. He was the future king. He would have been the heir to the throne after his dad. But when he was five years old, both his father and his grandfather were killed in a battle at the same time. And because his nurse knew how Game of Thrones worked, his nurse who was looking out for him in, in an effort to protect him. She took off running with the child in her arms, trying to get him to safety, away from whoever would come to try to take his life. And as she's running, 
she slips and she drops him. And he falls awkwardly. And in the fall, he breaks both of his legs. And without the benefit of modern medicine, the wounds never heal properly. The bones don't set right. And so he spends the rest of his life crippled. And he can't walk. So he's got no family left. He's lame. And he's got no choice but to spend his life in hiding. Ashamed of his family. Ashamed of his disability that everyone could have seen. And ashamed of and afraid of what will happen if ever the new king found him out. So for 20 or 30 years, this has been Mephibosheth's life. And now the new king has found him. And he's brought him back to the city he once fled. And as he somehow bows his crippled body before King David... He can't help but expect that what comes next is a sword through his neck. Because that's what happens when the new king finds the family members of the old king. In so many ways, Mephibosheth's life has been like a bad dream. And now the nightmare ending that he has always feared seems at last to be coming true. Shame. Fear. Hiding. This has been Mephibosheth's life. And many of us, many of us live our lives in that same way. Shame, fear, hiding. For some of us, it's because of things that we've done in life. Like we feel guilty and then we feel ashamed because of choices that we've made. Or things that we've done, actions we've taken that have gotten us in trouble or have hurt other people or who have embarrassed our families or have ruined our reputations. We feel shame and fear and we hide because of things that we have done. But for others of us, like with Mephibosheth, it's not because of anything that we've done but because of things that have been done to us. People have said things and done things to us. They've mistreated us. They've abandoned us. And those things have just left us wanting to hide. Some of you here today, you've had important adults in your life say and do things to you that have just crushed you. Like your dad walked out or never showed up at all. Or your mom said that thing to you that just cut you straight to the heart and you've never forgotten it. And it's marked you your whole life. Like those are things that that, that have happened to you, that, that have left you ashamed of who you are, of where you've come from. In in a room this size, there are some of you here today who've been sexually assaulted, or, or you've been physically or verbally abused. Like It wasn't something that happened because of anything that you did. You didn't deserve it. You didn't invite it. But it happened, and it hurts. And you just carry around shame because of it, and you just want to hide. For many of my ethnic minority brothers and sisters here today, I know that you have often in life had to endure things that someone of my complexion never has to face. You get followed around the store. You get pulled over for no reason at all. You you get asked where you're really from. 
You step into spaces where you're the only person of color. And you feel like you're on trial for your whole race or your whole ethnicity or your whole country. And some of those things that you've had to experience have made you just want to hide from certain situations and certain people. Look, for all of us, there's stuff that we do and there's stuff that happens to us that makes us just want to hide in fear of what might happen if we ever get found out. And I think that for some of us, all that fear and shame and hiding, it transfers into our spiritual lives as well. When we think about God, we picture him as an angry tyrant who wants to eliminate us. Like we look at the things we've done and we think there's no way that God could ever love me because of that. Or we look at the things that have happened to us and we think that, man, if God loved me, there's no way that ever could have happened in my life. And so we run away and we, we run away from him and we hide in fear. Mephibosheth's story, it was this nightmare that sent him into hiding. But as you read this story about Mephibosheth and as you feel the drama of his life, I think that what anyone with a heart wants to see happen is to see the nightmare end. Like we read this story and we root for Mephibosheth. And for us, when we're in the midst of our own hiding, even if the fear and the shame feels crippling most of the time, what we long for deep down inside is to be able to come out of hiding and to be able to really live again. Like it might be a nightmare right now, but we dream of a happy ending someday. And this is where our story in 2 Samuel takes a beautiful turn. Check out verse 7. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, and watch this. David said to him, do not fear. Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. What's David doing here? I mean, he's inviting Mephibosheth to come out of hiding and come to a place where he can really live. At the very moment where Mephibosheth thinks that the nightmare is real, David calls him by name. And then he tells him that it's actually the happy ending to a dream that was far too good for him to ever even dream. Now Mephibosheth, he hears this and he can't even believe it. For him, David, what David offers is way too good to be true. And so in verse 8, he calls himself a dead dog and he keeps his face buried in the dirt. But then David actually does everything that he said he would. Look at verse 9. This is how the story ends. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always, always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. 
So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. (coughs) So what we see here is that David follows through on his promise and he does everything he said he would. In fact, we see David do three things from Mephibosheth. First, he gives him protection. He doesn't kill him. He puts the sword away and he preserves Mephibosheth's life. He gives him protection. Second, he gives him provision. He meets his needs. Mephibosheth was hiding out at this place called Lo Debar, which in Hebrew means no pasture. The implication is that it was this place with no food, with nothing to eat. And yet here, David, he brings him back to Jerusalem, the capital city. And he gives him a house, and he gives him land, and he gives him food, and he gives him servants. He restores to him everything that belonged to his grandfather Saul. And so this is a classic rags-to-riches story, right? David gives Mephibosheth provision. And then third, he gives him position. He gives him a seat at his own table. Now the king's table, it was the royal banqueting table. It was where all the government leaders and important people would gather to feast with the king. And four times in this text, we are told that Mephibosheth would always eat at the king's table. This was a tremendous position of honor, and four times the narrator reminds us of it because it's that big a deal. Now think with me for a second about what would happen as Mephibosheth came to that table with his crippled feet. Twice in this passage including in the final verse of the story, we are reminded about Mephibosheth's crippled feet. You see, those feet, they would have been something that everyone would have seen and everyone would have known everywhere that he went. It was the kind of thing you just couldn't hide. He couldn't walk, and so they'd be on display everywhere. And so for him, you can just imagine how easily that could be this ongoing source of shame in his life, this thing that he just wanted to hide from. But what would happen as he sits down at the table? I mean, picture it. Think about it with me. As he comes to the table, and he joins with the others there, and he pulls up a chair, and he sits down at the table, what happens to the source of his shame? It's covered over by the table. At the table, as he sits there, he's an equal with everyone else around the table. No one can see that thing anymore. It's been covered. And so this table, and the king's banqueting table would have been way, way better than this thing, right? But this table, it's this beautiful picture of the protection and the provision and the position that David gives to Mephibosheth at the table. That's what the table is all about. And so here's the deal with Mephibosheth. He spends the first half of his life, or however long, hiding because of his fear and shame. And from his vantage point, when he's there, there's really nothing that he could ever possibly do to get out of that situation on his own. He's stuck there, underneath the desk, with no way out. But then, the very person he's been afraid of actually comes to the rescue and does the exact opposite of what he expects. 
The king shows up and instead of putting him to death, actually gives him life. And why does the king do what he does? Well, the whole key to this story is in verse 3. This is the key to understanding it all. Look again at verse 3. David says, That I may show the kindness of God to him. That I may show the kindness of God to him. The reason the king does this kindness has nothing to do with anything Mephibosheth has done to earn it or deserve it. The reason David does what he does is because of his commitment to Jonathan and the kindness of God. And it's because of God's kindness that Mephibosheth gets to come out of hiding and enter into life. He really gets to live again. You see, as we look at this story, it'd be easy to think that this story is all about David and that David is a hero. But if you know anything about the storyline of the Bible, you know that like almost every character in the Bible, David is not really a hero. In fact, just two chapters later, in this book, in 2 Samuel, two chapters later, David commits adultery, gets the woman pregnant, and then murders her husband to cover it up. David is not a hero, and this story is not primarily about him. See, this story, like every story in the Bible, is primarily about God. And at the center of this story is not David in his kindness, but God in his kindness. It's the kindness of God that David shows to Mephibosheth. It's the kindness of God that gets Mephibosheth out of hiding and back into life. And ultimately, it's the kindness of God, only the kindness of God, that will get us out from all the places where we hide too. The God of the Bible is this God who delights to rescue and restore his people. From beginning to end, he is the God of kindness who loves his people with a never-failing, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. And that love and that kindness is most vividly on display in the person of Jesus. As the Apostle John wrote, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. Y'all, the truth is that we are all spiritual Mephibosheths. We've got shame and fear and lots of other stuff that sends us into hiding. We believe a sword is coming for us. And indeed, because of our sin, we deserve the sword. But what Jesus Christ did is he came and he took the sword for us. He went to the cross and he took the sword that we deserve for our sin so that God could offer us his kindness instead. And because of Jesus, now God offers us the same three things that David gave to Mephibosheth. He offers us protection. He won't punish us as our sins deserve. Jesus took the sword so that we don't have to. He offers us provision. He promises to meet our needs now and give us eternal life forever. And he offers us position. He invites us into his family to become his honored sons and daughters. He invites us to come feast at his table. And when we're seated at his table, all of our shame and our fear and the stuff we want to hide, all of it is covered. So when you look at this story of David and Mephibosheth, what you're seeing is a picture of God's covenant kindness on display. What David did for the crippled son of Jonathan, God offers to do for you through the crucified son of God. And this means two big things for us today. First, receive his kindness. Receive his kindness. God has a place at his table waiting for you, and he wants you there. But as long as you're upstairs hiding underneath the desk, you can't enjoy the meal. 
If you want the protection, provision, and position that he's offering you, you have to receive it. It's like this. My son Tripp, he just turned six. And uh, Tripp loves his birthday. Like, he loves his birthday. Dude gets giddy for it for weeks leading up to it. In fact, this year, he actually, uh, he made a calendar with all the days for about a month out leading up to his birthday. And every morning he'd wake up and he'd go X one of the days off. Like, he had the countdown calendar going on to his birthday. Dude loves his birthday. Now, for his birthday, we love getting him presents. Like, this year, we got him this lightsaber umbrella. Like, it's an umbrella, but it's a lightsaber. Like, he pushes a button, and, it, and he can be Luke Skywalker. He, he can be Darth Vader. He, he can be whoever he wants. Like, change his colors. Like, it's a sick umbrella. Like, you know, we get him great toys, great gifts for his birthday. Really cool stuff that we want him to enjoy. And as his dad, like, I love giving him those gifts. I, I get the stuff for him because I want him to have them. I want him to receive those things. I, I get excited for him to open the presents on his birthday and get to enjoy them. It's fun for me. So just imagine... Just imagine if on Tripp's birthday, and, and like I said, he loves his birthday, so what I'm going to tell you, this would never happen in real life. But just imagine if on his birthday, we, he, we wake up in the morning, we're like, Trip, dude, it's your birthday. There's presents down here. Come on down and enjoy them. And what he does is he just gets out of his bed and he crawls underneath and he hides there. And we're like, Trip, get the lightsaber umbrella. You've got to come open it, dude. Get down here. Come enjoy it. And he just stays under his bed hiding. Like, if he does that, he's never going to get to enjoy the good gifts. They're there for him. They're ready for him. They're waiting for him. But he's got to come receive them. He's got to receive them. And the same is true with us with God's kindness. Jesus did everything necessary to purchase it for you. And he delights to give it to you. He wants to protect you and provide for you and restore you to position in his family. But you've got to come receive it. You have to come to the table and take what he's offering you. And that's certainly true for those of you who are here today who have never received Christ. Like if you're not yet a believer in Christ, God is calling you. He's inviting you to come to his table. He's offering you his kindness now and forever. He wants you there, so come. But it's also true. It's also true for lots of us who are already believers in Christ. Like so often, even after we've received Christ, we just stay in hiding. We don't come to God. We don't come to experience intimacy with him because we're afraid of what will happen if we show up at the table. We're afraid that God will reject us because we haven't been reading our Bible enough lately. Or because we can't seem to break that pornography addiction. Or, 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 be, or because we drank too much last weekend. Or, or because our marriage has fallen apart. Like we look at our imperfections and our failures and we think there's no way that God would receive me at his table in the state I'm in. But I need to tell you today that that conception of God, that idea that he accepts you based on your performance, you know, that is a lie. That is a lie. When we play that performance game, we forget the truth about the table. We're forgetting that our seat at the table did not come because of our performance or our perfection. It came because of God and his kindness alone. He wants you at the table not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. And so now he wants you to come to the table with all of your imperfections and all your failures and all your shame and all your shortcomings and allow him to cover it over for you. But you've got to come. And practically speaking, the way that God covers it all experientially, the way that he heals our hurts and he relieves our shame at the table, it's through the other people sitting at the chairs on the table around it with us. 
It's through coming to the table and sharing with others what's really going on in your life and in your hearts that you can experience his kindness through them. That's how he does it. And I know that's risky. I know it's vulnerable. But it's in that vulnerability that you open yourself up to the possibility of actually experiencing God's kindness for yourself. Only when you're vulnerable can you really receive it. So the invitation to you today is to come to the table. To bring yourself and all your stuff to God and to his people so that you can experience his kindness. Come with all your failures, with all your hurts, with all your fears, with all the stuff you've been hiding. Come and be vulnerable so you can receive God's kindness. That's the first thing. Here's the second. Receive it and then extend it. Extend his kindness. You remember that it was God's kindness that David showed to Mephibosheth. It was something that David had received and then he passed on. And in that way, David provides us this beautiful picture of what recipients of God's kindness naturally then do. And the best picture that I know of this in, in, in the world today are my friends Dan and Christine. And I want to finish this morning by telling you their story because I think it so captures the essence of what God is calling us to in this story in 2 Samuel. At 18 years old, a week before she was supposed to head off to college, Christine found out that she was pregnant. Unexpected. Uh, she finds out she's pregnant and you can just imagine her future flashes before her eyes. At that time, uh, her... She, she was alone. Um, the, the father was out of the picture. So she's scared. She's alone. And she could think of no other alternative. So she drove herself to an abortion clinic. And on the day, she scheduled an abortion for later in the week. And on the scheduled day, she came in and they, they did an ultrasound. And when they did the ultrasound, they found out that she was actually too far along to legally have the abortion. And so she was stuck having this baby. And now for her, college wasn't going to happen. The future was totally altered. And a few months later, she gave birth to her daughter, Courtney. And when Courtney was born, they found out that she had extremely complex and life-threatening disabilities. The doctors projected she'd live at most for a few years and that she'd spend most of that time in some sort of vegetative state. She wouldn't have much of a life at all. And so here's Christine at 18 years old. No boyfriend, no husband, no job, no plan. Literally living on welfare with a special needs daughter and lots of medical bills coming her way. You can imagine the shame and the fear that she experienced in that space. The desire to just crawl up and hide. But that's where God and his kindness stepped in and intervened. He brought her this Christian friend who came into her life and invited her to come to the table. and To join her at church one Sunday. And Christine came, and in that place she was vulnerable, and there in that church community she found God's kindness, and Christine started to follow Christ. And then in that community, this guy named Dan took notice of her. And Dan himself had received God's kindness earlier in his life, and, and he asked Christine on a date. And eventually he asked if he could become Christine's dad, and could become Courtney's, Christine's husband, and become Courtney's dad. You know, Dan didn't have to do it. He was stepping into a whole mess of stuff. 
but he did it with joy. He stepped in to show the kindness of God to Courtney by being her father and to Christine by being her partner in raising that precious girl. And together, Dan and Christine, they've just continued to do it. For the last 15 years, they've regularly, regularly volunteered at this hospital for children with special needs. And Dan, he works as a middle school math teacher where he shows the kindness of God to students in the classroom. And then together, uh, and, and Christine, she's working with a, a ministry that serves special needs students. And together, they've just shown the kindness of God to the world. And about seven or eight years ago, they were on a mission trip together in El Salvador. And they were at this orphanage. And at this orphanage, they met this special needs boy named Kevin. And at the time, Kevin was nine years old, and he weighed just 18 pounds. Nine years old, weighed just 18 pounds. But Dan and Christine, they, they loved him, and they, they saw his need, and they wanted to show the kindness of God to him, and so they adopted him. And they brought him into their family and brought him to the U.S. to join their community. You know, doctors predicted that neither Kevin nor Courtney would live to see their teens. But last week... Courtney started her senior year of high school, and Kevin started 10th grade. Both of them are thriving. They've both completed marathons with their dad, Dan, pushing them in wheelchairs. Courtney's gone to prom. They've played in baseball leagues. They've, they've worked jobs, actually. Like, and they've shown the kindness of God to the world around them through the beaming smiles on their faces everywhere they go. Like, these kids are thriving. And none of it has been easy. Like, if you ask Dan and Christine, they'll tell you it's been really hard all along the way. There have been, there have been medical emergencies where they thought for sure they were going to lose one of them. There have been extended hospital stays. There have been costly medical bills. There's been a whole lot of worry through the years. But through it all, Dan and Christine just keep showing the kindness of God. They keep showing God's kindness to others. Because they've received the kindness of God. And that's what the kindness of God does in our lives. When you receive it, it sends you out to show it to others. And when God's people extend God's kindness like that, what it does is it gives life. It gives life to people like Christine and Courtney and Kevin and Mephibosheth and you and me. That's what the kindness of God does. And so here in Chicago, here in Rogers Park, in the office where you work, in the building where you stay, in the neighborhood where you live, all around us are people like 18-year-old Christine standing at the door of the abortion clinic in shame and fear who can see no way out. All around us are people like 9-year-old Kevin, orphaned, abandoned, and in desperate need. All around us are people like you and me who are carrying around guilt and shame and fear from the things we've done and the things that have been done to us. And like David with Mephibosheth, God wants them to come to his table. And so if you have received his kindness, what he's doing is he's asking you to extend it to others in the world around you. So who are those people in your life? Who are those people? Who are the unlikely, the undeserving, the difficult, the outsiders? Who is God calling you today to go and extend his kindness to? Y'all, today... God is offering his kindness to us. He's offering his kindness to you. He's inviting you to come out of hiding and come to his table always. And then to spend your life inviting others to come to the feast with you. So today receive his kindness. And then go and extend that kindness to a world in need. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. And close your eyes for a moment here as we wrap up.
as the band comes on and starts to play, I want to give us a moment to reflect on what we've talked about this morning. And even during these last few songs, I want to give you some time to remember as we sing about the kindness of God. But I know this morning um, there's some stuff for all of us that we're hiding. There's shame from our past. There's things we've done or things that have happened to us that we've just been hiding. We've been holding on to it. If that's you today, I want to invite you to, to literally come to the table. Um, right now, with every eye closed, there are some deacons who are standing along the walls. And after the service, I'll, I'll be up here up front. And, and if you've got stuff on your heart, stuff in your life that you just need to tell somebody about, you just need to get off your chest, you need to come out of hiding with, I want to invite you today to go and talk to one of them. Our deacons, our pastors, these are safe people. They'll keep what you share confidential. They won't tell anybody. But they'll help you. They'll point you to the kindness of God. They'll let you share what's really going on and let you enter into it. So I want to encourage you today, as we sing, with everybody standing, no one's going to see you. As we're standing, just go talk to one of these deacons. Get some prayer. Share your heart. Share what's going on. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing. Father, we praise you as the God of kindness. The God who loves us with a never failing, never giving up, always and forever steadfast love. We praise you for your invitation to your table. That we can come and we can be in your presence in a place where you cover all of our shame. You cover all of our hurts, all of our fear. I pray for those of us here today who are really struggling, who need to talk to somebody. Would you give them the courage right now to get up out of their seat and go and have that conversation? I pray that the stuff that's been, that we've been carrying around, that we've, we, it would be lifted off our shoulders today, that we'd be able to step out of hiding and really live again. Would you draw us out in that way? Would you let us experience your kindness, receive it deep into our hearts in places where you would heal us in ways we can't even imagine right now? Would you let the nightmare become a dream? And God, I pray that we as a church would be people then who go and who show your kindness to a world in need. Would our neighborhood be transformed? Would our city be transformed? Would our world be transformed by the kindness of God that goes out through us as your people? Pray that in Jesus' name.